What about two or, two or three favorite cartoon strips of all time is uh, The Far Side, created by a man named Gary Larson, who uh, kind of suddenly and inexplicably uh, ceased making Far Side comics uh, while still in his prime back in the mid-1990s. But during his 15-year run, it was a good run for him, Larson uh, repeated a number of really endearing characters, one of which was God, Larson himself being a devout Lutheran. So I want to show you a couple of my favorite strips of God from Gary Larson, the far side here. This first one, God on his computer looking down at a man, walking on a sidewalk with a piano hoisted by a rope over his head. And if you can see closely, God has his finger next to the smite button. Which I just... Joy. Uh, next one, uh, God creating the world as a cooking mix. Well, you'll see here, I'm just going to describe this for our recording's sake. Our ingredients behind him on a shelf, including birds, reptiles, medium-skinned, light-skinned, dark-skinned people. And a caption reads, from God speaking, and just to make it interesting, as he sprinkles in the final ingredients from a box labeled jerks. All right? <laughs> just to make it interesting. Thanks, God. All right. And then, but my favorite, I think in terms of both, it's got a little bit of depth Favorite has to be this four-part scene featuring God and Ernie Miller. It starts with God on his throne in a cloud, and he's making a phone call. He says, hello, hello, this is God. Who's this? Uh, this is Ernie Miller, sir. Er Ernie who? Is this 555-1728? No, sir, this is 555-1782. Sorry. Click. <laughs> and for the rest of his life, Ernie told his friends that he had talked with God. While getting our funny bone a little bit, this is really kind of, sort of, dark humor. Right? Because in case in this little cartoon are some of the greatest frustrations of communicating with the divine. It's rare. It's brief. It feels very remote. But finally, if someone finally does call us, we think, you must have the wrong number. But you're asking for somebody else, not for me. Even still, polls still tell us that there is more interest, more desire to make contact with the spiritual, with the divine than ever before, even while frustrated. Because while we may not, or we may attribute some of these frustrations to God, might put even some of the blame on him, even still, I think we're innately aware that we're the source of our own frustrations. We sit down to pray, right? While every bone in our body screams, get up, get to work. We don't know what to say, so we say nothing or we just aimlessly babble, right? And with very pretty words sometimes, words from the Bible. But if we talked, like we talked to God, to our friends, they would think we were loco. Sometimes we just kind of keep talking that way to God. And we don't want to say it, but we clearly believe through our actions that uh, what good will this prayer do? And I can kind of, when I'm praying about it, I can do better myself. And yet, prayer has an incomparable track record 
historically, like on a grand scale, and individually. So historically, we see this from Paul's first missionary journeys through the Protestant Reformation to the modern spread of the gospel in places like Korea, places like Latin America, in China. There are these accounts of people getting together with intense personal, but also community-wide prayer, which God uses to move and transform lives. A recent example that I read about this, uh, I should say a recent example, but reading recently, I was about the businessman revival of 1857 and 1858, during which an estimated 4% of the U.S. population, 30 million, of 30 million people, so it was about 1 million people, trusted Christ. 4% doesn't sound like much, but I mean, we're talking about an entire national population, and it all started with a quiet businessman, a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, started a Wednesday lunch prayer in New York, about a quarter of a mile from Wall Street. Got businessmen together. First week, six people showed up. Second week, 20. Then they decided to move it every day as more and more people joined in on this movement. And it wasn't prone to hysteria or, or, or you know, uh, weird stuff. It was just prayer to God, pleading with Him. It was replicated then in Boston and Philly, Philadelphia and D.C., in Chicago. By the next spring, 2,000 businessmen in Chicago were praying daily for an hour. I just love that. It's not like this grand, like, it wasn't eight hours. Just got together consistently for an hour. 2,000 people. Among those participating was a young 21-year-old named Dwight Moody. That would spark him and become an evangelist who would reach thousands of thousands. If you desire to see God move in and through his church, in Cayman, and wherever God may take you, this will be born out of prayer. Community-wide, historically, but also individually. Prayer has an incomparable track record for people, for persons. And we know this because neither God nor human beings do neutral very well. I'll tell you what I mean by that. God has wired human beings with certain needs, certain desires, and we know this from experience. And So, for example, uh, we might love an activity, but you know, maybe you do it so much that you, know, you get sick of it, you say, yeah, I'm going to take a break. Or you may love something so much, that it, but it's kind of harming you, so you take a break from it. But are you really ever taking a break from it? No. You're always replacing it with something else. You're always filling it with something else. So for another example, if you don't find love, security, respect from your spouse, you will seek that somewhere else with potentially sad, even tragic results. As human beings, we don't do neutral. We can't just get rid of things and, oh, I'll be fine if I just get rid of something because there's always a replacement. We like to think we are getting rid of things, but really we are always replacing things. We see this in Romans 1 where Paul talks about how people in the world have taken God, put him to the side, and exchanged him for created things. There's a replacement principle and exchanging always going on in our lives. It's the same with prayer. We were created to talk to God. And prayer has its own 
worldly replacement. And that is what I'll just call self-talk. You don't often think, if you think, oh, I'm not praying, I'm doing nothing else. But no, we're always doing something else. We say things to ourselves, man, it's got to keep going. Or man, you know, you can do this. And even if you're not one of those motivational, you're like, yeah, right, I don't really do that. Even if you're not that motivational kind of talker, you self-talk in other ways. You say, you know, anytime you think to yourself, he's crazy. Or when you say to yourself, uh, it's, it's time to bail. I'm going to get out of here. Or, or that dude's a jerk. Right? In your mind, you say these things. It's self-talk. Who are you talking to? You're talking to yourself. All right? And, and when you sigh, same thing like, ugh. That's the place that prayer is supposed to occupy in our lives. And that's our lives start to transform, friends, when, yeah, i got to keep going, is replaced by, help me keep going, Father. Help me look to Jesus who endured the cross. Those sorts of things. Or what a jerk is replaced by, God, I don't like this person. Help me love them. Help me know that there's, there's pain in their lives. Help me remember there's pain in their lives. You may not say, like, just like, it might just be like, that person, Lord, is a jerk. Help me help them. That might be what it looks like. In your mind. You transform as do they. So, as a church, we want to make that replacement. That natural inclination to just be with ourselves, talk to ourselves. As a church, we want to talk, we want to pray outward as we were designed to do. We want to pray outward like there's a God. Not that there's just me. And that's what we're passionate about, excited about through the fall. We looked at Psalm 27. This kind of sparked this. Throughout the fall, we're going to spend Sunday mornings examining God's word. Both for how to pray and for the problems of life for which prayer is the answer. Or really the means to the answer because it connects us with the answer who's God. You know, because we, we want to learn how to pray. It's hard to do that and we want to learn, okay, there are obstacles, there are difficulties in life. How does prayer fit in and transform both the way we look at those things, transform the situation, and most importantly, transform us? So, bear with me here in this introduction. We've got three parts that are going to be coming up this fall. Three parts of our series, Pray Like There's a God. First part, we're going to go through for a number of weeks, is praying personally. Pray personally. Just between you and God. Second part will be praying with and for other people, with one another, for one another in community. And finally, we'll spend part three praying obstacles and opportunities. Because we all know there are a lot of problems we have when it comes to talking to God. Or at least there seems like there's lots of problems. I believe there are. But what's great is as I've looked at this more and examined God's word and tried to practice it myself, those obstacles can actually be opportunities to grow your prayer life in a way that if they weren't there, your prayer life would not be as deep. It would not be as rich. And that's one of the parts I'm most excited about, part three there. Come to part one and two. Part three is going to be awesome. Just say that, right? So, we're not going to do this in a cold, sort of didactic way. But we're going to look at, at sort of vignettes or moments in the Bible where real people with real struggles 
reach out to God and in doing so teach us about prayer. So, but I don't want to leave this morning without uh, serving you up uh, a little slab of meat. All right, so open your Bibles to Romans 8, if you would, uh, verse 14 through 17. That's on page 808, if you would like to use one of the Bibles we provided in the chair pockets for you. This is a good place to start because it's really, this is the place where we learn to ask the most important question about prayer. Here in Romans 8, 14 through 17. Let me read this with me, if you would. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children than heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. God's Word. Now, this chapter in the book of Romans represents the beginning of new, the new life in Christ. So at this point, Paul has talked about human beings, how they have been created, how they have fallen, what fallenness, what's called sin, or rebellion against God really looks like, the solution to that, and then how we get to that solution by faith. All right, so he's talked about this for the first seven chapters, and now he's like, and this is what it looks like, this new life in Christ. So this is a huge turning point in the book of Romans and this letter to these people. Paul is saying, this is what it looks like to know and follow Jesus, new life in Christ. And so he gets to this point, which we just read, about crying out to God, and he'll continue to talk about prayer and communion with God throughout the rest of this chapter. As you see, central to communicating with God, if you saw what we read, central to communicating with God is this idea of sonship. Being a son, being a daughter. And so the most important question regarding prayer is where do you stand with God? We would really fail if we failed to look at this question. Where do you stand with God? Because it means everything. Specifically, do you stand before him as a son or daughter and him your father? Or do you stand before him as a defendant with him the judge? Or you stand before him as an employee, a hired hand, with him the boss. Really think about that. We'll come back to this. Because one thing is immediately clear from this passage. You are not born his child. You are not born his child. Yes, he created you. But you're not naturally coming out of the womb, slap, slap the butt. Why, hallelujah! That doesn't happen. All right, some of you like... Some of us have honestly kind of thought in our minds, we've been ingrained, maybe even been told, that because we're in a Christian family and you grow up in that, you went to Easter, you went to the Christmas services, you, you did some candlelight things, you, you went to a um, confirmation. One requirement for being a Christian, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not something you're born into or adopted. 
It says here in verse 15. So in looking at this question, we also have to answer, why does it make a difference where you stand with God? And how do we gain a right standing with Him? Let's look at those two questions. Why does it make a difference? Let me illustrate this point. Uh, whether you're single or married, has there ever been um, a family that you've encountered that you thought, man, it would be cool to be married into that family? Like, has there ever been a family that, that you respected the dad, like the mom was real tender and sweet and made you, I don't know, brownies? You know, the brothers and the sisters, they were kind of fun to be around, like you related to them, you liked the same sorts of things. Has that ever happened? Maybe you didn't marry into that family, but you just looked at that family from afar and said, that would be a cool family to be a part of. Has that ever happened to you? Well, first of all, let me just give a suggestion. If you're married, men, take your wife's hand right now. All right, squeeze it, do it, and then whisper to her, you know, so glad that came true for me. All right? <laughs> and go ahead. I'll wait. Now, I'm looking at you, Sean. Oh, come, oh wow. It's going to create problems later. All right. <laughs> now, my family is very close. We're tight-knit. And we're, we're you know, kind of crazy, kind of loopy. We have our flaws <laughs> for certain. Plenty of them. My brother-in-law really loves our family. All right, now, he will never admit this. He will never say this is true. In fact, uh, if he hears, which will happen when my sister listens to this podcast later that makes him listen to what I'm saying about him, uh, he, I will get a phone call from him about this, but uh, it's okay. When he first visited our house when we were living in Southern California, he was afraid of my dad. He will also not admit this, but... My dad would administer something called the Myers-Briggs test. There's this personality test. And he would administer it to any potential suitor or suitee. All right, and this kind of tells you, like, what your personality is. I won't get into all the details. But as all the major candidates presented themselves, he would give it to them, then evaluate and judge. Right? My dad's a really good-natured guy, but it was so strange that he did this. But anyway... So he began, obviously, he knew this was coming. He related to my dad as a defendant for a judge. He was under evaluation. That would be ruling a verdict. And so he aimed to appear superficially good throughout his first visit there and to appease it. In some ways, from a distance, right? When you're trying to appease someone like that, you don't want to get too close. Don't want to share too much. And so he tried to look good for my father. Of course, he ended up having the same personality exactly as my father. So, um, I think that made my father trust him less. And so, that's another story. So then his second visit, it comes out, uh, he, he became my father's hired hand. My dad asked him to, in our backyard, my dad really got gumption. He asked him to help build one of those fountains. You know, one of those you got to dig out, put rocks around, and then you like put like a dolphin, you know, that like out of its spout. That's water going from it. This one was like a boy that was fishing, and out of this fishing pole. Okay, I mean, it was, whatever. So he asked him to put this in our backyard. And so the relationship took a turn to that of employee boss. Right? And, uh, you know, but when, when we're in that kind of relationship, we often do things out of obligation. Right? There's no, there's no real heart behind it. When the found project was complete, we pass on the back, party congratulations. But a year later, when we discovered that he'd actually picked up two Hispanic men by Home Depot to do the job for him, which, <laughs> we found that his heart was not really in it. 
Uh, he did it for. <laughs> I, I really still can't believe he did that. But it was a legitimate business. I'm sure these men uh, outside of Home Depot, but um, they were very gracious. And he paid them in cash. But. Yeah. But such is the employee boss relationship, right? Love is yet to grow. You cut corners, you do the minimum, right? You, some, some of you know this as employees, if you're honest. Some days this happens. But once he committed to the marriage, he was a son. He was a son in the truest sense, just as I'm my dad's son. My dad would share things with him. He'd be vulnerable. He would support uh, my brother and my sister-in-law through the ups and downs of their life. He was a dad to him. And my brother-in-law would, I know he still, he calls up my dad. He asks for advice. He bounces ideas off my dad. And again, I'll receive a phone call for this. I'll deny it. But I know this happens. In other words, once he made the commitment, he was immediately adopted into the family with the full rights and privileges of a son. That's what every person potentially has with God from Jesus. We want to look at the family of God. We think it's a great family to be in. But you don't just come in. That's not how it works. But potentially, we can have these full rights as sons, as daughters for Jesus. Because you may have heard through me, uh, maybe through a you know, church experience, maybe uh, on television, you may have heard Jesus described as the Son of God, which I believe he is. And through trust in him, you can have all the rights and privileges of communion that he enjoys with the Father. Now think about that for a minute. I want all the rights and privileges of communing with the Father that Jesus enjoys. Don't about Jesus co-eternal, existing from the beginning of time, part of the Trinity, Jesus. The same rights and privileges communicate with the Father. But we're not born into it. You must trust your life to Jesus. Trust that He is in control as God and trust that He forever forgives the big no in your heart. You know that big no, the, the no that wants to run your own life, the no that wants to say, God, I think I can do things better my own way. When you trust him and trust the work that he did to accomplish us on the cross, to forgive you forever your sin, to be your Lord, you're brought into the family. Let's look at this more closely because maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you're on the outside you know you try to communicate with God, but things haven't worked. Maybe that's because you're not a son. You're not a daughter. But look at what we have in terms of privileges more closely. Hebrews 2.11 says this. The book of Hebrews, the author says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. But this is, he who sanctifies is Jesus. That is, Jesus making us like him, holy. And those who are being made holy, like Jesus, us, all have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Amazing. 
Look at another verse here. Verse John 4, 17. Apostle John says this. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And check this out. Because as he is, as Jesus is, so also are we in the world. We're talking Jesus here. Eternal, right hand of the Father. Always before the Father's face, interceding for things we don't even pray. As he is, so also are we in the world. So we can always talk to the Father, Jesus. You can always commune with him. This is actually a possibility. As he is, so also are we in the world. That is a fact. Trust in Christ. It's amazing. Right? I just want to show you one more. Jesus says this at the end of his high priestly prayer. He's been praying for not only his current disciples, but for future disciples. And listen to how great the privileges are that we have through prayer. The communion with God. John 17, 26. As I have made you, the Father, known to them, my followers, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, when Jesus prays, the Father answers. Amen? <laughs> right? And so, the same love, look at that, that you, the Father, have for me, the Son of God, may be in them, us. The same love. The same relationship, loving, communion that Jesus enjoys, we can enjoy. That's the privilege. We obtain it by trusting Christ. Being here means... Being, just being here this morning means you, you have some interest. Some interest in God. But you may not stand before him as a son or as a daughter. This is critical. It absolutely affects how we converse with him. Because the two largest obstacles to prayer relate to how you see yourself before the Father or God. First, the problem of guilt like a defendant before a judge. Right? It might be real guilt. Actual something where we have violated God's command or we've hurt someone. Or it might be false guilt. Something that was from so long ago but you cannot get past it. Either way, you know that feeling. You have it cleaned up. There's shame from the last hour, the last day, the last week, the last year. And you don't really feel like you can talk to God. So we throw in the towel it's far more humiliating to show up to court. God's our judge. I can't come to him like that. And there's the opposite extreme, the problem of performance, like an employee before his or her boss. Yours is a relationship of obligation in which boxes are checked, right? In which timesheets are filled out. When you clock out, God stays in his office. He does not go with you. Right? It's not just a matter of appeasing God. You don't want to carry him with you after you talk to him. You don't want him all up in your business of your life. Eventually what will happen is you'll cut corners, you'll expect others to do work instead of you. It can't last because prayers become a hollow word for the one who knows every word before it's even on our lips. You can't trick God. 
But when you know, when you absolutely trust that you have been freely adopted into the Father's family with all the rights and privileges communing with the Father, it transforms your prayers. It transforms your prayer life according to this passage we read this morning in three ways. We're going to breeze through this this morning for time's sake. Honestly, this could be like two sermons, but we're going to breeze through it this morning. Knowing Sonship, being confident of it, transforms your prayer. But you begin to pray with clarity. Abba, Father, it says here, right? In Romans 8, verse 15. Because when it helps to know the person you're talking to when you're talking with them, right? It helps to know when you open your mouth who the person is on the other side. But this was an issue for God's people for a long time. All right, follow me on this. Before Jesus, God's people didn't even utter or write God's name. We've talked about this before. They used only the consonants of God's name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Because he was so remote, so other than us, and in many ways so unknowable. We don't even want to say his name. There's a clear distance. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. It introduces us in full to this God. John says in the first chapter of his gospel that Jesus is actually the exegesis of God. He's the translation of who God is. So who did he say God is? He gives us his name. And Jesus' name, to use more than any other name, was Abba. Abba is an Aramaic term. Because you see, the Jews in Palestine at this time did not speak Jewish regularly. On the streets, they would have spoken Aramaic, just as Jesus would have. And apparently this term was so important that it's one of only like three terms in Aramaic that are preserved in the New Testament. Peter, who, who helped basically relay most of the information with the Gospel of Mark. Mark uh, and Paul, who, who used it twice, knew this word was so special to Jesus, they preserved it. And so we see this Aramaic word show up, even in the English, even in the Greek. Because Jesus used it in the Lord's Prayer. He used it when he looked up to heaven and prayed and a dove descended upon him. He used it to pray on the cross. And the reason this is so important, you may or may not know, Abba is a colloquial term. It's, a, it's slang. It's a familiar term for father, meaning daddy. I mean, so we've gone from not even saying God's name with its vowels to daddy. Now, if that doesn't scandalize us, there's something wrong and our prayer life will never be transformed. And I want to press this daddy a bit further because even saying Abba, 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 you can tell, right? It's a toddler's word. It's a toddler's word. You can't get out father or even daddy. So what does a toddler say? Dad, dad. So Abba is a toddler. It's an affectionate term of a toddler for his father. And so Jesus makes this relationship no longer hazy. We no longer need to concern ourselves with whether we're in or whether we're out. You are a dependent toddler in the lap of a loving and doting father. And that changes everything. Because a toddler 
isn't looking for a father's things, is he? She wants the father's neck. Right? To get up on the lap and hug. To climb up on there and see the world as her father sees it. And in turn, a father loves to hear even ceaseless babble of his children, especially of his toddler. He just wants the toddler with him in any state, whatever that might be. That's who Jesus shows us, the Father. We can see him clearly, and that transforms our prayer life. Because one of the biggest problems with prayer is we focus our efforts on praying. But that's like looking at a windshield for the scratches and bugs on the windshield and not seeing through it. You know what I mean? You can sit there and pray, and you're not praying well. Am I doing this right? But the whole point of prayer is to see through it to the Father. Who we can see clearly and know clearly is how Jesus has told us who he is. Amazing. Pray with clarity. We can also pray authentically. Verse 15. Cry, Abba, Father. Being authentic, crying, lamenting, honest, complaining in prayer clearly matters to new life in Christ. If you look later in Romans 8, Paul speaks of this kind of groaning three different times. Creation groans. We groan as sons. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer with groans that we cannot express. Now, I know that I've never been more honest about my complaint than with family. As a husband and as a son, right? You might not be willing to complain for anyone else, but with your family, we can get it out, right? Likewise, I never feel my fatherhood more than when my sons suffer and when they're being disciplined, which is also suffering for them in some way. I feel it's like... You know, building forts, wrestling, feeding them unhealthy foods, doing things that dad does, right? That's all gravy. I feel the import of being a dad in those moments of suffering. My child's going to hurt emotionally, physically, otherwise, from something that's happening. And then I love in turn, I desire in turn, to hear feedback from my child more during those moments. We took in our son this week. I don't have time to give you all the details uh, to the ER. And he had a little gouge in his face. It's, it's fine. It's all good. But he had to go under. And, you know, it's scary. And, you know, I so desperately wanted to hear from my child during that moment. More than any other time. So are you feeling okay? When he wakes up, just hearing from him. So it is with our Heavenly Father. There's no other time during which he is so pleased to hear from us than when we cry out to him. And finally, pray reassuringly. Being his son helps us to pray with reassurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are sons. Right? Verse 16 and 17. We need other witnesses to our faith. We need other people to tell us that we are his sons, that we are his daughters. I met with someone recently who told me ahead of time they were struggling. There was pain, there was heartache in their lives and past relationships they were struggling with. But most of they were struggling believing that they were a Christian. And I asked her a question. I said, when you mess up in the ways you're describing, why do you regret messing up? Why are you sad about it? That I disappoint God, she said. So, so it's not... 
that your reputation might be hurt, that, that you're hungover the next morning, that you miss out. I got her permission to share this, by the way. It's not these consequences of your sin. She said, no, it's just, I, I feel like I failed God. So I said to her, that shows me that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that godly sorrow is the kind about which you're sorry you've hurt the Father. You're sorry that you sinned against Him. And that leads to change. Worldly sorrow, Paul says, is the kind in which you're sorry because you got caught. You're sorry because there are consequences. By the way, her countenance changed. We began to talk about her being a daughter of the Father. Now nothing can take that away. She's so encouraged. That kind of reassurance is always available through prayer because the Spirit is our most reliable witness. He reminds us that you are a son, you are a daughter. Remember John 17, 26. I will continue to make you the Father known to them. Remember this? He will continue to make himself known to us because a child always needs reminders that he is a father's son. She is her father's daughter, no matter what. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that through faith in you, we can always know that we are a son or a daughter. Through faith in Jesus Christ, through trusting that he is Lord, through trusting that he forever forgives the big no in our hearts, to be reassured we're a son or a daughter. No more going before you, Father, as a defendant, not scared to really enter your presence, so we're just going to throw in the towel. But Father, no more we pray in our lives being an employee before a boss, where we check in, we do the prayer thing, and then we stop communing with you. It becomes a chore and eventually stops. You are our Abba, Father. You just want us to see you, get on your lap, and talk. And we have that available through Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that kind of communion with God, that they would consider trusting Christ. And they would talk to someone about it before they leave this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.